This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 8, The Bank on Yourself Revolution, and Pamela Yellen, Part 2. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your hosts, Mark Willis and Holly Bach, invite you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Welcome back, everyone, to this, your uh, Not Your Average Financial Podcast. This is part two with our special guest and uh, interviewee, Pamela Yellen. Now, uh, today, more than 500,000 Americans are using this method to achieve predictable financial secure growth. And this is uh, the method we've been discussing, bank on yourself. And Pamela is so confident in its effectiveness that she has offered $100,000 to the first person who can find a better financial strategy. So we are so pleased to have Pamela back on this uh, part two of our interview with her. Welcome back, Pamela. Thank you, Mark. I'm really looking forward to it. Well, what we're going to dive right on into here is uh, some questions that we've both brought up ourselves and also have collected from some of your fans and some of our clients. Okay, uh, so, great. You know, I think, Katrina, you had, you had a question that you wanted to make sure to ask Pamela as we're getting started here today. Oh, Pamela, I've heard you created a financial IQ quiz, and I'm curious if you can share more about that quiz and some of the findings. Oh, sure. Yeah. Financial literacy in the United States and actually Canada and other parts of the world is in the pits. Uh, there really is very little good education. In fact, there's very little education at all in basic financial concepts. And study and survey after survey has shown that people, the vast majority of people, flunk a financial literacy quiz. And uh, so we set out to create a quiz that would help people discover what their financial IQ is. And then we, you know, when the, after you take the quiz, you can, uh, you know, you can uh, uh, find out the answers and learn what, you know, what it is you, you're not aware of that has to do with basic financial concepts. So, you know, it's a 20-question quiz, and it's a lot of fun. People enjoy taking it, and it's, uh, you know, just very revealing uh, in terms of what you, you know, don't really understand, the basics that people don't understand about financial literacy. Maybe you can share your favorite questions, you know, or some of the questions that you, you found kind of stumped people from the financial IQ quiz. Oh, I don't have it in front of me at the moment, but it's famous. Everybody talks about how surprised they were with their lowest scores. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we found that I, I don't have the numbers in front of me either, but, uh, you, you know, something like 90-some percent uh, got, you know, a, a D or an F on, on the quiz. Wow. Whoa. And, and how many yeah. people took the quiz again? Oh, it, it has been... Probably over thirty thousand people now. Thirty thousand, and what's your you know the typical 
you know, peer-reviewed study, uh, which gives us an accurate representation. You know, most sample sizes that you read about in any kind of financial uh, study or even a medical study, you know, people can come to a conclusion about a sample size of 500 people. Right. So you did 30,000 respondents. That's incredible. Yeah, it makes it a very valid survey because, as you mentioned, most of the financial literacy uh, quizzes uh, have uh, actually involved, you know, maybe a thousand people, and we've got now thirty thousand. And it doesn't seem to matter how many people take the quiz; the results never change. They just the vast majority, the vast majority, you know, um, basically flunk flunk it. And, we, and only something like only. One percent gets an A, two percent get a B. It's almost non-existent the number of people who do understand and are aware of basic concepts. Well, and some of those basic concepts are, you know, about things like, you know, how many cra- how many major crashes have we had, um, like in the Dow, for example, since 1929, where it took you know more than 15 years for your money to get back to where it was, your investments to get back to where it was, because that's an important thing to know. Right. Mm -hmm. If you knew that the stock market had a history of plunging and then sometimes taking more than 15 years to recoup the losses, you might treat your finances and your investments differently. Yeah, and when we talked about last time how people forget so that quiz right there shows that people, they, they can't remember because they forget the pain and just remember the, the upsides, absolutely. Now, now, Pamela, where can we find this quiz if folks haven't taken it yet? So if you go to uh, you know, bankonyourself.com, I believe, on the, uh, at least on a desktop, if you go to, uh, on the sidebar, you can click on discover, you know, what's your financial IQ. Uh, I can't promise, you know, it'll always be there, but that's where it is the last I checked. (laughs) Pamela, we have another question regarding Bank on Yourself and your experience with your lifestyle and how it's changed. So how have you noticed your life patterns changing since you started your boy plan? This includes your habits and your regular rhythms and what shifted for you? Uh, I... First, I, I no longer depend on outside financial institutions. I don't depend on Wall Street. I don't depend on banks. We are, um, there is one exception um, as far as like using money from outside sources. When we purchased our home, or the current home that we're living in, um, we did take out a mortgage. Uh, I personally believe, I know not everyone believes this, but or not everyone would agree with this, but I do talk about this in my best-selling book, The Bank on Yourself Revolution, uh, that, you know, that it, having a mortgage can make sense. Um, it's the one thing you may want to use outside financing for, you know, we still do have a, um, a, as of right now, we still do have a deduction for mortgage expenses. And I don't like the idea of locking up too much money in a, in a house because all you have to do is look back to 2008, 2009 when the real estate bubble burst uh, to see what happens when you lock your money up in your house. If you, you can't get at it. 
uh, I remember during the, that period of time, we were traveling, we were in the Atlanta airport, we're in a, a restaurant having lunch in between flights, and we start, for some reason we struck up a conversation with the, the, the people next to, at the table next to us. And the man says to me, he says, you know, uh, my, ex, my ex-wife, when we, uh, she got the house, and I urged her, I urged her not to, you know, pay it, pay it off, because that's what she wanted to do. She wanted to pay off the mortgage. But, you know, who listens to their ex? So she <laughs> paid it off. Then the market crashed, and she also, at the same time, became disabled. And she oh, well. couldn't get her money, the money out of the house. She lost the house. She lost everything. And that can happen to you, and this isn't the last crash we're going to have with real estate. So, you know, that's my take on, you know, when you should use outside financing. But for everything else, we finance it ourselves, and we are financing the vast majority of our retirement through our Bank on Yourself plans. And that gives us the the financial security and peace of mind, true peace of mind that we talked about in the first uh, episode we did on this topic. Absolutely. You've got, uh, you've got to put your money someplace. And if you're putting all your money inside something you can't control, like the stock market, or can't get access to, like your house, when bad times come, and it's just a matter of when, not if, and no one knows what those events might look like. I, I'm, you know, Someone's disability is not going to be on their radar a year before, two years before, even six months sometimes before it happens. You know, if my last mortgage payment goes into the bank and the next day uh, there's another financial real estate crisis, that's a disaster. That's a, that was, a, you know, vaporized money. So speaking of places people put a lot of money and uh, where they may or may not be able to get access to it again, Holly, you had a really interesting uh, recent headline we, I guess we heard about. Yeah, so Pamela, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe uh, Ted Benna, who is kind of considered to be the father of the 401k, he came out with some recent statements that he made that really intrigued. Um, I know you know you and then also us that uh, specialize in the bank on yourself concept. And so would you mind sharing with our listeners uh, what yeah. that kind of recent development was? Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, Ted Benna was is credited as being the father of the 401k. The first person he actually used the tax laws, had them make some adaptations to the tax laws to allow the 401k to uh, to happen in his company that he was a benefits consultant for. They had the first 401k, and it what he says that the 401k over time became. Um, perverted, if you will, by Wall Street and big financial institutions. And it was, it's no longer anything close to what he had initially envisioned and what he initially created. And the fees got out of hand. Uh, it was never intended to be the primary saving method, only you know, a way to supplement pension income. And he came out recently and he said that he no longer thinks the 401k or IRAs are good for people. He thinks they are dangerous to your financial health. He thinks you have, he, he believes the mar- we're very close to a market crash. It's, the market crash is coming 
it will wipe out 40% or more of the typical investor's portfolio. I happen to agree with him. Um, he also says that the fees are outrageous, and all the research that I've done shows that even though they came out with new disclosure laws so that you, you know, they have to give you more information about the fees you're paying in your 401k, uh, most people still have no clue how much they're paying in their 401k, and I, they are paying much more than they think they right. are. The average person is paying over 1% in fees. Many times it's closer to 2%. And according to the Department of Labor, even a 1% fee will eat up at least a third of your savings over wow. 35 years. Wow, even say that 1%. again. Say How much How much will that eat up over that period there, of time? It's actually 28% is what the Department of Labor plus give or take. Wow. Um, so if it's 2%, that's two-thirds of your savings that, wow. you're, losing, that's that you're paying. Terrifying. Wow. And the thing that I take issue with is that Wall Street gets paid whether you win or lose. The only thing that's guaranteed, they never guarantee your results. They only guarantee you'll pay the fees whether they make money for you or they lose your shirt for you. And I think that's absolutely wrong. But those are the re- that those are the reasons. Oh, and the tax. You know, he actually said Ted Bennett said taxes. That's the problem. You don't know what your tax rates are going to be when you retire, but they're going to be higher, <laughs> most likely. Right. You know, look at the demo- changing demographics of our country and the country's debt. You know, it's unsustainable. And he says for all of those reasons, he has most of his money today in dividend-paying cash-value life insurance. Wow. So the very man that invented this, came up with this idea, and even to your point, speaking to the taxes, I mean, he thought at at one point it was going to be a really good idea for him to uh, defer his taxes. And now he's looking back on it, you know, however many years later saying, oh, wait, maybe that wasn't such a great idea. And maybe this hasn't turned into exactly what I thought it was going to be. And he's not saying maybe. He's saying this. He actually called it a monster which should be blown up. Those are his exact words. No hesitation in that. No No hesitation. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. No room for interpretation with that. That that should not be understated, that the very gentleman who put together or helped us uh, as a country find this code in the, in, uh, the tax law is now recommending something that looks a lot like bank on yourself. Now, speaking of, uh, we do have some client questions, Pamela. We sourced our uh, clients and our friends and others that know all about you and know about your book and so forth, and uh, we got some great questions. One in particular, I'll, I'll just start uh, reading a few if, if you don't mind, and love to get your thoughts on Go some of it. these. Uh, so uh, one of our clients, Joe, he asks, how do we reach out? Now, this is a guy who loves Bank on Yourself. He's asking, how do we reach out to low-income families? What can folks do before they're ready to bank on yourself? Uh, what is the step before taking the first step? The, the step before taking the first step is to make sure that you're spending less than you make. No matter what your income level is, you can do that. Everyone can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, you know, there's plenty of success stories of people who made very low incomes and yet were still able to save money. Um, so the first step is to make sure that you are living beneath your, uh, you know, your your income level, 
and that you, and the best way to do that is to differentiate between needs and wants. To ask yourself, and to first of all, not make finance, not make purchases immediately. To uh, if you're thinking of making a, a purchase that's not an absolute necessity, you should write it down. You should revisit it one day later or seven days later and work up to 30 days later and look at it and go, is that really something that I need or is it just something I thought I wanted? Because a lot of times if you do that, you'll find that the impulse has passed. And another way to uh, keep your, your living expenses lower is to pay cash, not using a debit card, though. Because studies show that you'll save on you'll you'll spend on average twenty percent less if you use the green stuff. You pull it out of your pocketbook, your wallet, and you use the green stuff. You know, cash, dollar bills, uh, which you know a lot of people don't even a lot of kids today don't even know what a dollar bill is. <laughs> Everything's auto, you know, money spits out of a. It spits out of a wall. They don't even, they have no clue. They literally think money grows on trees or money spits out of a wall. It's the same thing. Um, so paying with cash, the green stuff, not a debit card, actually reduces spending on average by 20%, but you don't feel deprived. So the first thing is, is that, and the second thing is put the extra money into uh, a safe and liquid plan like a bank on yourself plan where you don't have to worry about loss and build it up to a, be equal to two years of your income uh, because that will give you the rainy day fund, the emergency fund that you need to give you peace of mind when the unexpected happens and the unexpected always does happen. So true, and what a concept, you know, if you're paying cash, it's like you get a 20% off coupon everywhere you go. It's great. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Now, it's uh, just, you know, more real. Right, it's yeah. more real to use dollars. Now, I had another client ask, uh, bank on yourself, Pamela, bank on yourself seems too good to be true. Haven't we all heard that before? How right. can I be sure that the insurance companies will deliver on its promises? That's a great question, and the answer is, They've delivered on their promises for over 160 years, many companies. In fact, as the Bank on Yourself authorized advisors like, like Growth Financial uh, only use companies that have paid dividends every year for at least 100 years. And if you look back to the Great Depression, when 10,000-plus banks shut their doors, uh, Bank on your, almost no life insurance companies were impacted because mm-hmm. life insurance companies are, are there to deliver promises to the beneficiaries of the policy, the kids, the spouses. And as a result, they have to behave extremely conservatively. And there's a lot of regulations for them, more than banks have typically, and they tend to, not tend to, they have a history of under-promising and over-delivering. Now, we do recommend that you use a company that is a, what we call a mutual company, which is a company that is 
essentially owned by the policy owners as opposed to a stock company. A stock company is where it's owned by the uh, stockholders. And uh, they, you know, those companies have more pressure on them to produce, you know, positive-looking quarterly statements and so on. And they're willing to take more risks than a mutual or policy, you know, a company that is basically owned by the policy owners. And, of course, your, your, your agency does that. You, you only use the companies that meet very specific uh, requirements and that have, pay, have a long history of paying dividends, even during the Great Depression, even during the last Great Decession, Recession and every single economic downturn that we've had. And uh, there's a, a, basically a five-layer safety net that, that makes sure that insurance companies can deliver on their promises, and that's a lot more than any other financial institution has. And let me just say, for folks that would like to learn more about that five-layer safety net, sounds like a five-layer chocolate cake, which sounds pretty good right now. Uh, But a five-layer safety net, you can find out more about that by going to bankonyourself.com, finding the search bar, which, uh, if I remember right, is somewhere over on the right-hand side of the page, Pamela, and typing in. What would they type in to get to that that article? You would type in safety. you know, it would work. Uh, it works pretty well. Or a strategy for any economy. Perfect. Safety or a strategy for any economy. Yeah, perfect. Now, um, that's that kind of brings me to another question. Now, this one came from a client's friend, who's still skeptical. They're still looking at bank on yourself, and uh, they have. I don't know uh, where they are with their financial life at this point, but they had this question. Uh, they say, Pamela, shouldn't we diversify? Why would I put all of my money into a bank-on-yourself policy? Isn't it better to put my money in broadly based, broadly diversified stocks, bonds, and mutual funds? What would you say to that question? Well, I would say that, you know, what, what I would recommend is you don't have, it doesn't have to be an either-or. It doesn't have to be an either-or to start. Start wherever you're comfortable, whatever you're comfortable putting into a high cash value dividend paying whole life plan structured the way we, we do with the bank on yourself strategy. And then watch it and see the difference in the peace of mind it gives you over the other things you're doing. At that point, you may decide that you want to increase and buy, get a new policy. Um, I own 20 policies because I kept seeing the uh, I kept going, oh, my gosh, look at that. That really works. <laughs> I'd much rather have that than what I had with my investment. So I, you know, put more in, started a new policy. I started, poli- we started policies for each of our grandkids. Um, I have a couple policies that, uh, uh, that are part of a buy-sell agreement with my business partner so that my husband doesn't have to be- go into partnership with him when I pass away. So... There's all kinds of reasons to start policies, and many people want to have one on uh, if there's if it's a, say a husband and wife or a, or a significant other. Many people want to have a policy on each person and on each of the children, and then on the grandchildren. So you know you you can end up growing the policies that you have and just seeing how you feel about it, seeing how it makes you feel compared to what you're doing. 
And, you know, that's why I, that's why I have 20 pounds. Yeah. Right and if it, if it doesn't work, you can always go back on the roller coaster, right? There you can. There, there you, you go. go. Or huh? you can, you know, you can, <laughs> not that I would, I would recommend this, right. but you do have the option of, if, you're, if you come across an opportunity, let's say an investment opportunity, that just sounds like, oh, I've got to take advantage of it. I feel very confident in this investment opportunity. Well, take a loan against your cash value and put it into that investment. And because of the types of policies, the types of policies that Bank on Yourself advisors like Lake Roth use, you actually continue to get the same growth on your cash value even though you've taken out a portion of it to Mm -hmm. invest elsewhere. Uh, And that's where your money is basically doing double duty for you because it's working for you in the policy, even though the money's not, you know, invested elsewhere, as well as whatever kind of return you're going to get, whatever kind of results you're going to get in that investment. So that is something you do Love have it. available to you. Love it. And I know, Mark, you work with real estate investors. That's, That's right. One of your, you know, one of the things you specialize in, and and they they use the money in their bank on yourself plan. We have stories in the book about that. You know, they use the money in their bank on yourself plan to invest in real estate investments that they feel very confident about. It works so well together. It's like nitro and glycerin. They work so well together, it becomes something so great. I love it. Uh, Holly had a question from someone. Go, go for it, Holly. Yes. So, Pamela, sometimes when I'm sitting down with clients and I'm starting to describe the bank on yourself concept, how it works, and you know, maybe even get to that point where you ultimately reveal, you know, this is dividend-paying whole life insurance. And I've actually had a couple that will respond to me and they'll say, hey, I've actually heard of that. I've heard of this before. And maybe it was a, you know, a uncle, maybe it was another advisor they sat down with. And they'll, they'll, you know, say, oh, I think I've heard of something about, you know, using life insurance in this way. And so their question is, you know, how is bank on yourself specifically uh, different from maybe other people out there that are maybe doing the same thing? Any copycats or anything like that? Yeah. Well, there's two, two things that you might run into uh, well, so one thing that you're, that people should understand is that you, uh, as a bank, as bank on yourself advisors, your team is willing to take a significant cut in commission to structure a policy, the bank on yourself way, and basically, it, think of it as like a seesaw or a trade-off. In order for your clients to have more cash value in their policies than they would with the kind of policies that most financial advisors and life insurance sell, they must be willing to give up their commission. Uh, Sometimes 50% of the commission, sometimes 60, even 70% of your commission, you don't earn that when when you structure a policy to the client's benefit. So what happens is... With unfortunately, uh, and I don't want to paint all advisors with a broad brush, but this happens more often than I would than you know I would like. But what happens is the advisor might say, "Well, I wouldn't. I don't advise that. Everybody knows whole life insurance is you know a, a horrible place to put your money, and they'll recommend something else instead. And typically, you know." 
one, it might be investments, it might be other types of life insurance. Uh, but ba- basically, they're going to recommend something else because they are not willing to take that commission cut. And they would rather convince you that it's a bad idea. And that's sad, it's a shame, but it's, mm-hmm. it's a fact of life. Um, they, if they are selling investments and they say, ah, you know, you ought to put that 100000 into an investment, you know, not into, or 10000 whatever it is, not into a whole life policy, and they'll often tell you that the commissions are so high in the policies. Well, we did an analysis, and we show you it's, in, it's on the website, Bank on Yourself website. It's also in, in the Bank on Yourself Revolution book. We show you the difference. If you were to put $10,000 into an investment versus ten thousand every year for like, I think we did it for 30 years, and versus putting $10,000 a year in premium into a properly structured whole life policy, the investment advisor is going to make 10 times more money. 10 times ten more times money. More. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think they're going to tell you? You know, mm-hmm. um, and the and the other the other thing you're going to run into, and more and more these days, is that they tell you, oh no 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 no, don't buy a whole life policy, buy an index universal life policy because that way you can participate in the gains of the stock market when it goes up, but when it goes down, you don't have you don't lose any money, and I would say we you know we have much more detailed information about this on bankonyourself.com and also in the bank on yourself revolution but i would say if any advisor tells you that you should run the other way mhm and so don't look policies back policies are a time bomb waiting to explode well said. Well said. Well, we we better wrap it up there. I think we've we've even got more content, everyone, and uh, more really fascinating questions on our bonus episode that we're going to be uh, offering to those that would like to learn more about uh, Bank on Yourself and hear even some specifics on one or two of Pamela's actual policies. Of the 20 policies that she owns, she'll actually reveal some of the specific numbers, the dividends, the growth on our bonus episode that we'll be offering to anyone who'd like it. If you'll go to nyafinancialpodcast.com and sign up, we'll be happy to give you that special bonus episode. Thank you so much, Pamela, for being on this uh, part two of our financial podcast, the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. And thank you, everyone listening today, joining us for another episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join the financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.